You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Mark last week, where we discussed the need to be humble when you make economic forecasts and how central bank policies affect trend-following performance. And then, of course, we turn to the big question, namely when to apply the Moscow rules, as Mark eloquently called it. So if you missed that episode or the midweek release of the Allocator series with another fascinating and quite outspoken CIO, I invite you to go back and queue up those episodes after you finish this one. As you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor We want to be prerogative, but without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives and to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, if you can share these episodes with your friends, and not least, if you can rate and review them in iTunes or Spotify, we would greatly appreciate it as this is the best way for us to see that you get some value from the time and dedication each week that we put into it to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will continue to do them. With all that said, Rich, it is great to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things down under? Look, down under, it's very wet at the moment. So um, we have this significant rain depression in southeast Queensland and um, we're sort of... um, experiencing a lot of local flooding. But when I look at what's happening with world events, I I think to myself, what a small problem we have in relation to this small local flooding, even though I'm sitting in an office here with a carpet that's actually saturated with water because it's at the basement of the house and all of the groundwater is rising up. So I'm wearing these Crocs, which are are like thongs or, or, you know, um, Flip-flops, they call them in the UK, because it's almost beach wear. You've got to wear these these floating floating shoes because I'm, I am floating. But Ukraine, what a what a situation there! My heart goes out to the poor people there. I hope they stay safe. It's a tragic situation, but um, yeah, a very uncertain time in the markets. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I'm sorry to hear about your uh, your water issues. Uh, it seems <laughs> like you. You you need another battleship this week just to deal with that side of things. Um, but uh, yeah, you're absolutely right about um, the events of this week. I'm going to try and kind of stay away from that debate to some extent a little bit, uh, except it will come up in my market wrap. I think it's almost something we should, you know, we need to dedicate much more specific time to discuss if we want to get into it. Um, but it is a very uncertain time um, that we live in. and. Uh, I guess my fear is that deep down, I think this is only the beginning of what may come. But let's not go down that rabbit hole as such. I do want to give an update as to what happened this week. And despite all the geopolitical uncertainty this week, bond yields have actually drifted a little bit higher and the yield curve flatter 
as investors contemplate the Fed's upcoming rate hikes. And since Friday, the two-year U.S. Treasury note yield has risen 14 basis points to round out the week at 1.61%, while the yield to maturity of the 10-year U.S. Treasury note rose six basis points to close close Friday at around 1.99%. And stocks, if we look at the S&P, actually rose for the week, closing out 60 basis points higher. Of course, European stocks didn't close uh, higher. They did uh, sell off during the week, uh, given the events. But if you digest that for a minute, you have Russia invading Ukraine on Thursday. Putin has made his motive pretty clear, although it is debatable if he stops with Ukraine. The shock that move sent through the capital markets found the S&P down nearly 3% on Thursday, making its peak to trough from the 4th of January high down 14%. Now, safe haven assets rose, gold and treasury bond prices in particular on Thursday, although they lost some of that ground on Friday. The money market participants removed much of the probability of a 50 basis points move in Fed funds in March, and world leaders responded with sanctions and the Ukraine is fighting back the best they can. Apparently, that was enough for risk assets to rebound and put Putin's actions in the rearview mirror. The S&P is up more than 6% from the low this week. Now, to be fair, of course, the stock market had been selling off since the beginning of the year and was down in the mid-single digits pre-invasion. Perhaps Putin's move to expand on his western border was already priced into the markets. I have to say I remain skeptical that risk assets are pricing in the future correctly at this time. In terms of Fed news this week, both Federal Reserve Governor Waller and Fed Kansas City President George reiterated that they would like to see a move sooner and faster than previously hiking cycles. Are stocks really prepared for that on top of a war in Europe? I'm not so sure. And Friday's powerful bullish reversal in stocks didn't translate across the junk bond market as the Bloomberg US High Yield Index rose 10 basis points to 5.85. And that's the highest level since September 2020. And that left the index poised for its sixth consecutive weekly loss, which would top out uh, or top the early 2020 period for the longest such losing streak in six years. Now, um, let me bring in you, Rich, at this point, just to uh, sort of touch on what has caught your attention, perhaps since we last spoke, not necessarily just the last 48 hours, but is there anything that's been... um, keeping you more alert than other things? Well, you know, as as, as, as we mentioned earlier, um, if you remember back to that Black Friday event in November. I do. That's where my, my portfolio was pretty well re-equilibrated and uh, a lot of that risk was removed from the portfolio with that event. And I know I was complaining about it at that time, but you know, in the subsequent months that have elapsed since then, I've been so fortunate for that event to have occurred because... I've been able to sort of um, uh, take full advantage of these new emerging trends, particularly in the soft commodities like wheat, coffee, soybeans. There have been some very good emerging trends in the soft commodities. Um, You know, of course, I've got very little exposure in equities since that event as it cleaned out the portfolio, but um, Brent and crude got good exposure to that. So um, from that clean out, 
which is one of the big benefits of trend following. It doesn't hold on to this risk. It cleans it out. So as you sort of enter these drawdowns, it's not a perpetual increase in drawdowns. Your risk gets expunged from the portfolio. So it allows you to sort of take on these new market opportunities, which have been great. But what what has surprised me just just in the last last few days is this big bounce. Um, and uh, I was listening to commentary uh, where they were reviewing the conflicts since the Second World War, looking at the market impacts with conflicts such as Vietnam War and all of the different conflicts. And it's quite surprising that they actually only have a small material impact on the markets themselves, historically speaking. So, um, you know, whilst uh, we are caught up in the humanitarian crisis that's created, markets tend to sort of take uh, these conflicts in their, their, their stride with only a small maybe 10 12%, 15% correction. Um, they don't uh, catapult things unless they, of course, um, you know, accelerate um, beyond uh, local conflicts to world wars. Um, you know, they, the markets do take them in their stride. So I was just am- quite amazed, even though, you know, uh, I, I was caught up in all of the emotions of, of the last week, but I was amazed at this ability of the market to to bounce, uh, which is, you know, I, I couldn't understand it, to be honest with you, but I suppose it's because, uh, you know, this was fully factored in. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting. I think it raises a lot of uh, points that we may uh, dive into a little bit later in terms of uh, what really moves the markets and, and, and stuff like that. Is it news? Is it other things? Uh, so uh, so I think that's a very uh, interesting topic indeed. In terms of a quick uh, review from a trend-following point of view, I mean, my expectation is that most trend-following strategies actually finish the week slightly better than where they started the week, uh, I would say. And for kind of a classic, well-diversified portfolio, we did see some large moves across the portfolio during the week, not least because Russia is a large exporter of many of the commodities that we need in the West and Markets are trying to find out what these sanctions from the West, um, you know, will mean in terms of so future supply and, and future prices of these resources. Of course, most obvious is perhaps the energy sector uh, with Europe's dependence on Russian oil and gas. And yet again, I expect a healthy contribution from the energy sector to most trend-following portfolios this week. And uh, despite the flight to safety, actually, in the fixed income markets, and I believe trend follows our overall kind of short position at this stage. I imagine, I imagine that we still might have seen some gains in that sector overall, given that we saw a relatively muted reaction, um, you know, to to what happened, um, and where panic buying on Thursday really turned into a selling pressure uh, on Friday. And then if you look in other sectors, I mean, currencies probably mixed overall. I would imagine. You mentioned soft and grains and meats. You know, they had some pretty big sell-offs on uh, Friday. I wonder whether there was a little bit of intervention by some authorities that looked pretty suspicious um, that suddenly they would turn down uh, when you when you know how dependent we are on, on wheat from, from some of these places. So anyways, we'll see. But um, I think maybe there were small losses across trend-following portfolios uh, at the end of the week. And then you had metals. I mean, there were some bright spots in metals, I, I imagine, this week, in particular in some of the base metals like aluminum. I think people would have made money there. But 
gold and silver, not, not a massive move there. So, um, you know, but aluminum actually is up about 40% now from the beginning of the year. So that's pretty healthy, uh, a pretty good trend actually to jump in on. Uh, in terms of volatility, which obviously is somewhat tied to uh, what we do as well from a trend following uh, perspective, I mean, despite the S&P declining substantially in the first half of the week, the VIX only increased marginally, especially if we factor in the three-day U.S. weekend we had, which kind of pushed the Friday uh, close down uh, last week. Um, we saw not only a decline in the quote-unquote market uncertainty, if you look at the fixed strike volatility, but also a flattening in the U.S. Uh, S&P 500 skew slope to the flattest level since October 2020, both indications of another kind of week of relatively sluggish demand for put options, interestingly enough, or protection, I guess, in other words. The escalation of geopolitical events on Thursday, yeah, it did result in a slight steepening of the skew slope, but the increase in uncertainty was nowhere near these panic levels that, uh, levels that we have seen uh, in investors um, express from other in other times, um, and again, nowhere, no panic or frantic put buying uh, to be seen. Um, so, but you know, maybe a little bit of a pickup uh, in protection uh, at that stage, and um, you know, the dampened re reaction in in the VIX index it gained only, and I put that in quotation sign, five point nine points you know, at the open on Thursday while the S&P was down 2.6% at the time. So it was a spike in the VIX, but I'm, I'm actually surprised how calm in many respects this week has been for markets. Maybe this is a calm before the storm. I'm very surprised by it. Well, you know what? Actually, if you look at the way the, and I'm not trying to make any predictions here, I should say that, um, but if you look at the way the equities have sold off and you have this kind of one, two, one, two step down move, that looks somewhat similar to what happened before the big sell off in late 2008. And I think it's it, this, this, you know, the market, but we all, I think a lot of long only investors don't want to believe that markets might go down a lot, right? That's not in their interest. So, um, so people are still going to try and buy the dip. That's the mentality. And um, I actually um, had a recording yesterday um, with, together with Rob where we interviewed one of the co-authors of a book called The Rise of Kerry, which I'll publish in a couple of weeks, which is actually quite relevant for our conversations regarding trend following because their argument in the book is that the whole world has become this kind of Kerry regime in the last 20, 30 years where the best thing that can happen, and of course, this is exactly what 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 human human nature is is going to, uh, you know, want, is that you can make money when nothing happens and you do nothing, right? It's this convergent we call it the convergent market uh, strat or the strategies, right, where you do something and if nothing happens, you make money, and so it's been very very um, prevalent in the markets. And um, if it's coming to an end. I don't think many investors, uh, frankly, have a portfolio that is well prepared for that. So it's a concern in my view. I think we're seeing this, this, this continual sort of systematic increase in complexity, uh, compression, low volatility, um, regulation coming in and constraining the market volatility, which has led to this sort of this building fragility in the system 
And, um, you know, whilst it's been constrained, everyone has prospered. Um, this Kerry regime you talk about, everyone has made money through their, their predictive tendencies because the market has been fairly predictable, um, being highly sort of constrained and regulated. But, yes, I, I think we are probably coming to the end of that regime and um, it could be an explosive end to that regime, which I'm a bit concerned about. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, we've got uh, a couple of interesting topics, if we say so ourselves, I imagine. Um, but we also got a couple of questions, uh, one from Steve, one from Frank. We're going to start out with a question from Frank, because the one from Steve actually ties into kind of a larger uh, answer. Um, but before we do that, you reminded me, and you wanted to kind of bring up, because you saw that Jerry and I, and maybe yourself, got a little into a little bit of a, a LinkedIn uh, exchange with our friend Harold over at Transtrend this week. So uh, what, what are your thoughts there, uh, Rich? Well, it was just interesting because we had a, a conversation between um, trend followers who perhaps have a different understanding of what they think constitutes trend. So um, there was uh, Jerry and myself who, who stand on one extreme. We, we would regard ourselves as classic trend followers, this hunt for outliers that we talk about, um, you know, the use of these simple models, uh, highly diversified, you know, very simple models. But then there's trend, uh, there's, there's trans trend on the other side, um, Harold, who has a deep understanding of the formative stages of trend development. And, you know, he suggests that um, the traditional factors uh, that people deploy to understand how markets move, like momentum, volatility and things, that doesn't really help understand what trends are about. So they, there's this search that they undertake for what they call these real factors that are underpinning trends, and it really shapes uh, their entire process, and it, it clearly does allow them to achieve very uncorrelated portfolios, which obviously does them very well. But then sitting on the classic camp with Jerry and me, et cetera. And I think you'd fit there as well, Diaz, but I think you're sort of almost like a blend between uh, the, the, the Harold the one and the who, Jerry. I, then the one I, I don't want to be, I, I want to be friendly to all of my <laughs> uh, guests and co-hosts on the podcast. No, I think what we should describe here is what came up was, and I, I'm really sorry, I forget uh, who brought it up in the first place, but there was a, there was a, a a post and they were searching for a name. And then, of course, Crisis Alpha came up. And uh, and then Harold responded something about, oh, no, not, not Crisis Alpha, um, not Crisis Beta either. I think it should be Negative Alpha or maybe it should be Crisis yeah, he, Beta, Negative Alpha. He this said is it where should I be get Crisis it. Beta with Negative Alpha. With neg and I, <laughs> I completely don't understand any of that. And I think if we if we can't explain Crisis Alpha well, we shouldn't start explaining Negative Alpha in a Crisis Beta world. Anyway, so I just stepped in gently saying, oh, I'm not think I don't think it's a good idea to start calling it Crisis Alpha again um, because people kind of misunderstood it because they started expecting that every time there was a crisis that we would make money. That's why it's called crisis alpha. And, um, and, and well, even if it was like a five-day crisis or 12-day crisis like we saw in February of 2018, which wasn't a crisis, it just kind of became labeled as a crisis. So, so I've kind of, I was very enthusiastic when the term came up and I think I've mentioned this many times in the podcast. I thought it was great. Something that 
institutions could hold on to and they could tell to their investment committee, listen, we've got exposure to crisis alpha, so we're going to make money when there's a crisis, believe me, right? And it turned out not to be the case because, again, we are uncorrelated, so you can't tell in advance exactly what we're going to do when things happen. So I just gently said, I don't like really crisis alpha. I don't like crisis beta. Then I suggested I try to get kind of your view into this and say, maybe we call it, you know, um, the, the hunt for outliers. But I know that that's never going to fly in a, you know, in a, can you imagine people sitting in an investment committee and saying, oh yeah, we're going to invest in this firm that hunts for outliers. I think well, people, well, Harold you know, was quite forthright there and said, no, it's not a hunt for outliers. It's a, a trends are change. That, that's what he came up yeah, with. So. Which, is, which is kind of interesting, the, the change. But then I thought this morning, preparing for our conversation, maybe should we should do something really novel. Maybe we should just call it kind of like these commercials you say, you see on television where they say, it does exactly what it says on the tin. <laughs> so maybe we should call it globally diversified because we are. Long short, because we are futures, because that's what we trade. Managers, right? Globally diversified, Full long stop. short futures. Full stop. No Maybe interpretation that's, that, there. That, that's just fact. exactly. It does exactly what it says on the tin. So, anyways, I don't know. <laughs> it's always fun to have these uh, conversations. Um, and um, what 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 I yeah. liked about uh, I love these conversations when, when we bring in the likes of Harold, Jerry, etc. Because we get this different viewpoint, but the good thing is that this viewpoint is 100% invested in trend. It's not a viewpoint where we entertain um, the absorption of convergent models into our portfolio. The, these mm. are discussions that 100% trend followers have, and, and Harold is one of them and Jerry's one of them. But we've got different models that we apply. Harold's definitely got something within his short to medium-term models. Jerry's definitely got something with his medium to long-term models. Different philosophies, but maybe there's a symmetry here where these different philosophies are fundamentally saying the same thing. Um, so who knows? You know, and this is actually why I sometimes say in my introduction of our episode is that this is the you know, the, the podcast is there for us to voice our different opinion on the one topic that brings us together. And I, that's exactly what you say. We, of course, say that with much love and passion for trend following, but we, ex we express us differently. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. And, and, and the other beauty of this is that we're all really good friends in our industry. And one thing that I've always loved about the managed futures industry, to put in yet another description of what we do, Maybe I need to remember this globally diversified long short futures. It's just very long to say every time. But anyways, so uh, but I, I just love the friendship and the, uh, the the amount of friends that I have made in my thirty plus years in this industry is amazing. And uh, even though we are of course competitors in some way, but uh, anyways, we're probably friends first and foremost, and that's the beauty. Anyways, a, that was a long introduction to the first question from Frank. So this is actually a question that was sent to you. And this is why the question says, Hi, Rich. I have a question that perhaps you could discuss with Niels at your next podcast. I just caught up with a major global institutional fund manager. They're currently pushing out many ESG investment options as their customer research, i.e. prompting questions, show clients are wanting more exposure in this space. As a result of inflows, the performance does not look too bad. However, 
the warehouse risk is huge. How would you and Neil see trend following fit into the ESG space? That's yeah. a great question, Frank, um, because I see this on my side as well in terms of questionnaires we have to um, fill out when it comes to ESG and trend following. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, Rich. Yes. Yeah, so look, um, we have this philosophy called trend following, and this philosophy demands this rules-based process that unfortunately doesn't take ethics into account. So in relation to something such as um, sustainable development or ESG um, in relation to investing in ESG um, uh, programs, I, I do love the principle of sustainable development. I think this entire planet needs that. But for our method, I don't think we should be restricting our portfolio to only invest in ESG products because uh, our portfolio is is a rules-based process that tells us from those rules, from a very large sample size, don't be prescriptive in your universe. Treat all liquid markets the same way. Go long or short. Um, this is the model you apply and this is the process you apply. But as soon as we bring ethics into the picture, um, that will restrict our universe to potentially ESG only. Does that mean we've suddenly got to be long only in relation to that that um, that model? Uh, because the ethics say we should be bullish in relation to our prospects about uh, sustainable development, etc. Ethical guidelines. Um, no, that doesn't work for our model. So I, I tend to separate um, our process from my ethics. Um, I've worked in the uh, sustainable development industry for many, many years in my earlier days. I think there are better ways to um, to uh, to create sustainable solutions in the long term. I do think it's something that needs um, government involved highly because they need to create the the regulatory environment and the the guidelines uh, for which um, you know people that. Um, to stop exploitative practices. But I don't think that's something we should be doing in our trend-following space. What, what do you think, Niels? So I take a slightly different view, I have to say. And uh, again, I have to be careful because I don't want to um, upset anyone who's been on the show who feels differently and who trades differently. But I actually do think we can do something that, um, you know, has an ESG angle to it. So, and and but I think... What I think is important is that ESG, to a large extent, in my view, actually is embedded in what we do because it comes down to the selection of markets in our portfolios. Now, Rich, I might actually ask you to mute yourself while we, I speak because I can hear all the rain that you're talking about coming through the, my uh, headset here. So uh, just maybe to, to make it uh, nicer for the audience to listen to our uh, conversation today. But anyways, so... I, I, of course, I don't think we should change our approach, meaning we should be long, we should be short. That's not the case. Uh, or that's not the issue. The issue is, though, that I do think there are certain markets that we should restrain from. And um, I think I have said it before on the podcast, and this may be a popular, not a popular view. Um, but I do think that there are some concerns about the G, for example, uh, governance um, in certain countries. And um, there are certain countries today that have very liquid futures markets. We've talked about them before on the podcast and they 
have seen a lot of interest from managers. Many of our peers have set up relationships that to allow them to trade um, these uh, commodities. Um, but I just think that's a difficult thing to do if you want to be ESG compliant to some extent. Um, so to be very specific and to be very blunt, if we have concerns about how people are treated in China, should we, just because we can make money from it, embrace Chinese futures markets? I don't think we should, um, but that's just my opinion. Um, but that is one way we can have a small... The same with, you know, um, people forget maybe that um, in a futures uh, product, we have a lot of cash. And therefore, we do invest in fixed income securities. Now, those fixed income securities, you can also take a view about their ESG compliance. And you can have uh, rules for how much of your cash portfolio uh, can be of a certain uh, ESG rating. I mean, there are ratings on these things. You can look that up and you can say, I don't want to go below double B or whatever it might be. So, so, so I take a different view to you on this one, uh, Rich, uh, because I do think we can, you know, not as much as other strategies, right? F of course. But I do think we can have some um, and I do, and actually think we should, if we care about these things, we should have that, uh, but we need to be consistent. So we can't say we're ESG compliant and then completely ignore it when, when we see trending markets in countries with less, who are less ESG compliant, in my view. That's how I see it at the moment. No, I, I see, see where you're coming from and, um, I like your approach, uh, you know, but where do we draw the line? I, I, I'd be saying, sure. like, do we invest in Bitcoin because they're high users of energy? Um, do we, you know, to what extent do we apply this? Um, I, I think personally, from my perspective, um, this this trading method that we've got is 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 sort of ambivalent in relation to what it trades. But uh, with the wealth that's generated from these programs, then you. Can significantly contribute to a better world um, with how you decide to spend that money um, outside of the, the trading world. It's just that, you know, there are these specific rules which our backtest undertakes. Um, and through this sample size, um, treating all markets the same way, um, you know, it I just feel as though it might compromise our method a bit. And you'd pay, you would definitely pay. A price in the short term, maybe in the long term, with the ethical principles, it it works. But in the short term, you would pay the price. I agree with you. I think there is a price to pay, and and unfortunately, with if you want to do good, often that comes with a price, right? I mean, if you know, let's that 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 is that is true. Another thing that I would just say to round off this topic is that I do think that that ESG probably is more relevant for the management company than for the for the trading strategy that CTAs represent. That means, what do we as firms do, you know, for the environment and so on and so forth? And how do we govern our own companies and, 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 and social responsibility and all of those things? So those things we need to live up to as well. But as I said, I do think there are certain things we can do in our portfolio. But again, it may come at a cost. I'm not, uh, not uh, disagreeing on that one.
Now, we do have another question from Steve, but that is something that ties into a longer topic and response that you had looked into, Rich. So we're going to come back to that in a couple of of minutes. Um, but the first topic we really wanted to talk about is really something that um, we've started doing a few months ago. Um, people may or may not have seen that on the uh, on the blog uh, side of the of the website. But it's this monthly update we do in terms we call I think we call it the monthly trend following performance report. Um, you used to publish it on your side. We've now kind of revamped it a little bit and uh, expanded it. And um, so, um, but why don't you talk? Why don't you talk a little bit about? why we do this and what we're trying to achieve. And then we'll see if we agree on that point. Look, um, the, the reason this was developed in the first place was um, uh, obviously we are trend followers here and we wanted to develop a report that specifically focused on the performance of the trend following program. So um, I, I, I'm fairly unsatisfied when I look at the different reporting programs around um, that they're, they're not particularly targeted towards uh, trend-following um, processes. So that was one of the reasons I thought, well, we need some sort of um, method of uh, focusing on uh, these programs, that, um, the, the methods under which we, we apply. And then we want to have some form of method of benchmarking. So th these reports were generated on the basis that um, a trader who was applying these principles could use these reports as a basis to benchmark their own performance in comparison to what the best uh, were doing. Uh, or alternatively, an investor who wants to, who is allocated um, um, anywhere in there in terms of investments something they can benchmark performances against, well, how does a, a, an investment program um, perform over the very long term in comparison to their own performance? So benchmarking, I think, was a very important uh, component there, particularly um, to develop uh, realistic expectations in the long term about uh, what these programs can deliver. So yeah. that was a, the prime reason I think we, we, we did this, Niels, but then what we needed to do, therefore, was uh, we, we needed to access the data. And fortunately, we had Nielsen Hedge as our go-to free data Absolutely. source. There's a big shout-out to Linus from Nielsen Hedge. Yep. But, um, but we needed to narrow the data because he collects data on a monthly basis for thousands of, of hedge fund programs. So we needed to um, filter that data to um, our selection criteria. So uh, we decided to use selection criteria that would focus on these trend-following programs. They must be geographically diversified across a broad array of asset classes. Uh, they've got to be fully systematic in nature. Uh, they must possess at least a 15-year unbroken record, and I, I think we need to focus on that. that. That's an important requirement. That's about robustness. Mm -hmm. um, and also the final one is they must adopt uh, trend-following um, techniques as their dominant strategy in their program. So under those selection criteria, we then narrow down the field to those programs that met that those selection criteria, which therefore gave us about 59 programs, 15-year unbroken record uh, to work with. And that gave us a very good suite of, of trend-following programs that, you know, there was a, quite a few different styles within that um, that suite of 59 different programs. Some were classic trend followers. Some were the likes of trans, trend, as we've discussed. 
um, that there was a, a broad spectrum of different styles. Some actually did have a dominant component of trend following, but there were components of things such as pattern recognition, convergent elements within their strategies as well. But at least it gave us a, a, a comparative field of trend following programs that had this 15-year unbroken record. And the reason we like this 15-year unbroken record is that we believe that, well, I personally believe that the best metric, risk metric of all to use it's not Sharp, it's not Sortino, it's not Ma, it's not Calma, it's not even Serenity. What it is is the validated track record, um, the ability for a program to stand the test of time across a broad array of, of regimes. That, that's something that I think is undervalued in the investment community because, and that's, that's why I think that there is a, a strong emphasis towards Sharp because people are always looking at what is the program that's generating immediate returns? That's all they're concerned with. But when we're looking at this long-term validated track record, we're looking at performance over the long-term, wealth-building performance. And so that's a very important metric, at least to me, um, and why we, we adopted that selection criteria. So uh, what, what we do in this monthly report is the first thing we do is we say, well, of those 59 programs, let's create an index of those 59 programs. And so we call that the Top Traders Unplugged Trend Following Index. And we report on the performance of that index on a month-by-month -month basis. And I feel as though that index is more informative than, say, the um, Societe Generale Trend Following Index or the BTOP50 Index. This, uh, this index has the likes of Dunn, Chesapeake, Mulvaney, all of these different programs that we... we typically talk about in this this podcast series and I would uh, say probably most of the people who have been a guest on TT, on TTU is is in the index plus yeah, a few extra yeah. of course yeah so it's almost tailored for uh, the, the podcast Niels. but uh, I know and when you look at the performance of that index you see how closely it actually does mirror the SG trend in the B top 50 but um and, and so we're using that as our preferred index. But on top of that, we use your trend barometer, uh, which perhaps you'd like to add to. But the trend barometer is a very useful um, state of the market um, barometer that tells us um, the degree of trending conditions in that market. I think you, you're, what you're using about 44 different markets um, in your yeah. program. Yeah, um, absolutely. So... Between the TTU trend following index and the barometer, that really gives us a good state of the market on a month-by-month -month basis. And then what we do in the monthly report is we have this macro recap. And what we do is there is we just do a quick summary of your weekly Systematic Investor podcast series. Um, in each of your episodes, your Systematic Investor episodes, you do a recap. And what we do there is we just give a summarised recap of the entire month and if people want further detail, uh, we lead them to the individual weekly podcast of that series. And, and this is then when uh, we, we start going more into the detail then of uh, the, the TTU trend following index, its monthly performance. And then we start looking at um, the performance of the top 10. And we have three different means of assessing what we regard the top 10 on a month-by-month -month basis. So the first is... Um, the, what I call the heavy hitters or the big batters, the, 
this is the top 10 by compound annual growth rate over that, um, that entire history. Now, whilst we have a minimum 15-year look back, we're actually um, commencing our, our index from the year 2000 up to current day. So we've got about 20 years of, of data here. And the top 10 by CAGAR tells us the, those that are hitting it out of the ballpark over that entire length of time. Um, and so for those investors or traders who are seeking big returns but are willing to embrace a bit of volatility in their drawdowns, that's the one to focus on, the top 10 by CAGR. But then we, we, we also have the top 10 in terms of the last 12 months' performance. And this, this is looking at, uh, you know, the spectacular results of the likes of, uh, you know, Mulvaney, um, Chesapeake, or the, uh, these ones that have been hitting it out of the ballpark in the last 12 months, we focus on them. You know, who, who are those big hitters? But then for those that don't like ulcers and they don't like volatile equity curves, we have a third category, which is um, your and my metric, Niels, the preferred metric, which is the serenity ratio. And uh, um, this serenity ratio... Well, let's call it... Let's, 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 let's be completely transparent. We adopted the serenity. We didn't come up with it, but we adopted it for our purposes because we think it makes a lot of sense. It does. It does. Yeah. And it, what it does is it goes to the next level um, in terms of... Uh, I know Jerry hates this term, but we'll, I'm going to say it, risk-adjusted performance. And um, so what we're looking at here is we're, we're looking at, uh, when we talk, in trend-following speak, when we talk about risk-adjusted performance, we're looking at the relationship between the compound annual growth rate and the drawdowns. We're not looking at um, sharp ratios or, or different forms of alternative risk metrics. We're looking at uh, pound for pound, what we record is the, the best reward to risk ratio that can be achieved through a trend-following model. And so that's why we're using the, um, the um, compound annual growth rate and we are looking at the drawdowns. Now, normally we'd be looking at the MAR ratio, which is simply the compound annual growth rate in percentage terms divided by the maximum drawdown in percentage terms. But we're using the serenity ratio gives us a bit more granularity in looking at uh, the nature of these drawdowns. So it's not just looking at the maximum drawdown, it's looking at the entire drawdown exposure of that portfolio over the time series, and it's looking at the, the shape and extent of that drawdown profile. So you and I have found when we compare and contrast, for instance, a simpler ratio such as the MAR ratio versus the serenity ratio, we find that the serenity ratio slightly outperforms the MAR ratio in terms of its reward to risk relationship over the long term. Um, so this top 10 by serenity ratio looks for, you know, which are the funds that produce this optimal reward to risk relationship, uh, which, you know, is ideally suited for compounding over the long term, um, they're far less volatile than the top 10 by CAGR or, or top 10 by last 12 months performance. But, um, you know, the likes of, uh, I notice Harold does feature in there um, in his uh, performance. Um, so these are a different form of trend following model that are smoother, um, but uh, they certainly do over the long term deliver very good, strong um, compound returns. So that's these top tens. And then the, the, the next stage of the, um, 
the monthly report uh, goes into the monthly performance results in relation to that research report that you and I undertook, Niels, uh, which is further looking at the serenity ratio and looking at um, how, um, if you are a, an investor seeking to allocate into the trend-following world, we provide an allocation solution that you can be, and this would hopefully satisfy Jerry, you would be 100% invested in trend-following only. But then what it does do is it uses the serenity ratio or the top five uh, programs in terms of that serenity ratio and compiles them into a, a, an allocation portfolio. And uh, we have a process whereby uh, we undertake this evaluation of the serenity ratio for each of our programs on um, using a 15-year window. And each year, we rebalance the portfolio to look at um, has the situation changed with any of those funds uh, with an additional year in that 15-year look back? Has that changed? And if so, do we need to change the allocation by serenity ratio? So each year we're doing an update of the serenity allocation and uh, we do find that um, when we um, use this solution of five um, programs, we, we're allocating towards five programs. So to meet the conditions of a, a serenity program or, or a program that we are selecting for the serenity allocation, We've got a couple of we've got a list of criteria we use, Neil. So I'll just go through that list. So they they must be currently active programs. Uh, they must possess at least a 15-year track record. They must have at least 100 million in assets under management. We do that for a size basis. Um, maybe you want to add a bit more to that, Neil's a bit later. They've got to be globally diversified across asset classes, which is our trend-following description. They must be fully systematic long and short, adopt trend-following trading techniques as their dominant um, trading style. They must offer pooled onshore and offshore investment um, vehicles, and that's to allow anyone interested in allocating to these programs access into these programs, and they must allow for a minimum investment of 100000 So with our serenity allocation, there is a minimum requirement because we're investing in five programs each year, we need a minimum capital of of $500,000 to play this game or what we report on, um, invested across five funds. So, Niels, do you want to add anything at this stage? No, I mean, I think what we're trying to do is, um, you know, the the big question that often comes up is just how do I, how do I select uh, managers? That's one way. And we're not suggesting that this is the only way to do it. We're just saying this is one way to do it. Um, and, um, and the other question that often comes up is, of course, when you speak to large investors who may have adopted the 60-40 portfolio, I think they do realize that there's an issue with the 40. Certainly, you know, until recently, they were getting negative returns in Europe and no returns in the US. It's improved a little bit since then. But, you know, if interest rates really are going to go up, they're going to face probably negative returns from that 40. So, I think the other part, what we were trying to to do was to say, if we adopt this path-dependent selection process where we actually are concerned about how the returns uh, show up in this trend following or this portfolio trend followers, um, if we can do that, what we really want to suggest is that then you can replace the whole 40 in a 60-40 with this quote-unquote serenity-based selection of uh, of trend followers. 
which sounds incredibly counterintuitive that you can have something like five trend followers be less risky than bonds. It sounds counterintuitive, but I think that's what we've proven in our research that you can. And certainly the combined result, once you then add the return stream of our quote-unquote serenity CTA portfolio with 60% of, in our case, we're using the S&P, um, the returns of that 60-40, the alternative 60-40 portfolio is, um, is very, very attractive. Yes. And it's something that really shouldn't, shouldn't have to be changed uh, in, in, in the sense that, you know, bonds we knew at some point that, yeah, you can't rely on those returns to continue because now yields are at zero. So what am I going to do for the next 5, 10, 20 years, however long the interest rate cycle is going to be? But with an alternative 40 uh, allocation to trend followers, um, you don't have to worry about that in our view. So, uh, so that's what we're trying to do. Um, as you rightly put it, pointed out, if you're looking for the highest returns, you probably go for the top five or top 10 in the KGAR selection. If you want something that, you know, is as, uh, as serene as possible to experience, then you might go for the other one. What's interesting about it is our selection for this year didn't change much from last year. And actually, it's come off to a pretty bad start. Some of the managers who are in there, or some I should say some of the programs, because that's the other unusual thing we've seen in the last couple of years, is that there is a high concentration of managers, even though it's five different strategies, it's actually only three different managers. Um, and their strategies have not had the best start to 2022. So we'll see. I mean, a year is a long time. And and therefore, you know, we're obviously perfectly um, uh, open to the fact that um, that these will perform differently than than maybe some of the other trend strategies have, that have done really well this year. So, it's an interesting project. We hope it's useful. Um, it's pretty transparent in terms of what we do and how we do it. And um, as mentioned, we do it every month, uh, usually mid month, when we have all the data, thanks to Linus. And um, yeah. You want to add something? Yeah, right? look, I, I just want to say, if you could imagine that each of these five trend-following programs, they're already incredibly diversified, each individual one. So when we are compiling five together, the this is where we our diversification goes to infinity and beyond. So you could imagine, therefore, that uh, that serenity portfolio allocation is always going to be uncorrelated with equities. So, you know, this is... It's not, we can never talk in terms of guarantees, but we can certainly be fairly confident that um, the allocation, the 40% replacement of bonds by uh, this particular serenity allocation is going to be uncorrelated to equities. I think we can be comfortably happy with that. And yeah, and maybe just to round it off, uh, with so, like with so many things we do on the podcast, this is to inspire people. It's not to say this is how you should do it. It's to inspire people to think differently, think outside the box, and maybe they will get some ideas. Maybe they want to replicate what we do. That's fine. It's all there. It's on the website. You could just do it. It's easy. You don't have to worry about it for another year. So it's not like you have to spend much time on doing it. But then maybe you want to do it slightly differently. Um, yeah, my, so anyway, my, my concern, Nils, is that um, when people look at allocations towards portfolios, they typically are looking at, well, what what component of trend following am I going to be including in my portfolio? And they might say, well, 10% or, or something like that. What we're saying is we're offering a solution there where you can be 100% allocated in trend following, produce these very good long-term um, 
robust returns and you don't need to be invested in anything else. So it really is supporting Jerry's cause of 100% trend, nothing else. It is. It is. Absolutely. Okay, cool. All right, let's move on to the uh, other topic we had uh, on for today. Now, the, uh, the the topic is really, does information move market prices or does trader impact move prices? This is something that originally got inspired by a, an episode in the volatility series. I think it was number eight with the co-founder and chairman of CFM, uh, Jean-Philippe Bouchard. And this has brought a up a question from Steve. I know we talked about it before, um, but it brought up a question from Steve that I'm going to read now. And since we had talked about this before, we're not going to go into the full length because it's quite a, a long answer as such, but we do want to touch in uh, when we get a question about it. And then we may have one or two other smaller topics we want to round off with today. So, um, so we'll go a little bit above beyond the hour or so, but there we are. Let's see. So Steve writes, hi, uh, Niels, I've listened to TTU for several years, and now it is my favorite podcast by miles. Thanks very much for that, Steve. Unlike some other podcasts, I never get bored of it. There is always at least one great insight in every episode. I really enjoyed episode 176 with Richard Brennan and his outlier trend-following interpretation of uh, exogenous and endogenous price jump research of Jean-Philippe Bouchard. It certainly got me thinking. I would appreciate if Richard could explain one aspect the next time he's on the show, which is today. JP's research used minute data and the timescales examined the pre and post price jumps periods were no more than a couple of hours. The financial physics explanation over the time over this timescale makes logical sense. However, Long-term trend following aims to capture outliers that last many months or even more than a year. I can't grasp how the exogenous news and endogenous no news timescale of a couple of hour scales up to many months. Apart perhaps from saying that lots of small non-causal changes occur in the same direction and persistently almost daily for many months where each price jump doesn't decay all the way back to the, the pre-shock level. What's the financial physics taking, uh, taking place over this long time scale? Thank you for your consideration of my question. Great question, Steve. I'm going to see if I can get Professor Brennan to answer this in about 10 minutes max. We'll see how that goes. All right. Well, it was a great question by Steve, and it made me scramble. It made me scramble to some of... Uh... Jean, Jean-Philippe's um, later research. He, he's done a, a paper um, in January 2022, um, a very good paper uh, called The Inelastic Market Hypothesis, a Microstructural Interpretation. So I had a good look at that. And what he did, Steve, is that um, he did look at uh, taking this uh, microstructural interpretation and then uh, looking at um, how we can scale this up to a macro uh, interpretation. So your question stems from the fact that you understood um, the the discussion uh, that uh, Jean-Philippe was putting forward in relation to 
the the nature of these major price moves, these endogenous and exogenous events, the research findings of JPB suggested that um, 90% of the major price moves, and a major price move on the minutes timescale he was looking at was greater than four standard deviations. So that immediately puts it outside of the normal range of a, a, a Gaussian distribution. And so when he was looking at those major price moves, he recognised that 90%, he believes, as emanates from internal market sources as opposed to exogenous news events entering the market. And uh, I suppose the, the key thing that JPB was attempting to do was to change the narrative in relation to understanding how markets behave. Do market, does market price um, absorb information into the market and then set prices accordingly? Or is there some other causal factor that is leading to uh, major price moves? And from this study of exogenous and endogenous um, events, uh, he concludes quite strongly that only 10% of these major price moves can be assigned to causal factors emanating from external news that infiltrates the market. Um, 90% is from what he regards as internal market factors. So this immediately puts a, a, a question mark over the efficient market hypothesis who assumes that uh, there are these things called rational participants or agents in the market who undertake their assessment of what they believe constitutes value of an asset. They, um, they undertake these, um, these rational um, exercises to, uh, according to uh, maximising a utility function and then coming to an estimate of what they think price is. Now, this is based on information that's available at the time. And uh, he, uh, the EMH hypothesis views the market as a big computer that takes all of these estimates of value and suddenly um, um, simply adds them all together, divides it by the number of participants making that assumption and comes up with a price. That's how EMH views it. Now, and therefore, the relationship of EMH looks at this notion of information moving price. Now, this research that Jean-Claude did suggested that, well, only 10% um, of the major price moves is associated with what he would regard as information entering the market from an external origin, such as a new virus developed or a new technology development, Ukraine war being announced. This is exogenous news that then comes into the market. Uh, his analysis concludes that 90% actually arise from internal sources that you can't assign a causal reason to. So there's some other causal mechanism at play. Now, you, you all understood that. That was in JPB's research, and that's what was discussed in the last podcast. Now, what, what happened from this research was he, he realised that uh, the nature of the endogenous and exogenous moves, um, they both have what they call a, a decay rate. In other words, there is a, a signal generated that ultimately leads to a, a major price move, and then that price move doesn't immediately go back to a base of zero. It takes a long time to decay. So just that principle of having decay in the signal itself suggests that markets don't instantaneously absorb information and immediately update prices. The presence of this decay signifies that there is a lag effect uh, in, the, in terms of the market's ability to 
accept even exogenous news. There's still a decay. However, he did notice that the signals of endogenous events are much more long-lasting. So whilst he was looking at the minute time frame, he noted that um, most or many endogenous events can last up to 300 minutes duration before the signal dissipates or the signal decays. There's this increased volatility all at that time. But he also noticed that the signature of the volatility of the price move for exogenous and endogenous events were different. Exogenous events, we had very low volatility until the news event was announced. We then had a major um, um, price move um, or a major um, shock in, in the price move that created this, this major directional movement. But then it took some time to decay. But an endogenous event um, starts from a small causal seed, slowly builds to a crescendo, and then slowly decays. So it's much more symmetrical in nature. So this is already suggesting that there is some decay occurring in the signal, which is saying that information is not immediately updated in the market. So this is where Jean, Jean-Philippe then steps from the microstructural interpretation into new interpretations from the likes of um, uh, Gebeck, um, who is, uh, who's, um, issued some um, important research in relation to um, what he calls the inelastic market. Um, there's a couple of them, Quebec and um, Kojin, I think his name is. Anyway, what they recognised is that, um, that so this, this information coming into the market and the notion of rational participants, um, what JPB was saying was that, well, what happens if we include participants who are not rational? What happens if we include participants who are what we call noise traders? They trade randomly. They don't trade in accordance to the information they receive. If you embed these noise traders on top of these rational participants, um, you should be able to therefore distinguish the, the principles of the EMH versus the principles of some other causal mechanism if you can find that these noise traders actually exert an influence on the, the price uh, from their trading activities. So, in other words, um, an informed trader or a rational trader and receiving information, according to the EMH, will move price because it's the information that moves price. But with a noise trader, if we find that they also move price, that means that it's not related to the information content that's come into the market. There's some other causal factor at play, such as trader impact or order flow which is a, a different physical mechanism for how the market updates its price. So this research uh, that he looked at from Quebec uh, of the inelastic market hypothesis um, looked at the influence of a, a dollar invested in the equity market and its influence on the, uh, the, the market capitalization of that market. And he noticed that there was a a dollar-for-dollar dollar relationship, a dollar invested either long or short, buying or selling in an equity produces a corresponding $1 uh, lift or decline in the market cap. That was per equity. But he also found, uh, this is a striking thing, that a dollar invested in the market itself or the index or a basket of equities, the relationship is not a one-to-one correspondence, it's a one-to-five correspondence. So uh, there's a small impact, a dollar impact coming in, but there is a big multiplier applied to that Um, initial dollar in terms of the market capitalization move. So this automatically throws a significant contention towards this notion of 
efficient markets and information coming into the market and is saying that perhaps there's some other causal factor such as trader impact or order flow or something which is creating this price move. We've already uh, been suspicious of it with this endogenous, exogenous difference, um, but now we're more suspicious because we also see this, this multiplicative property occurring at the macro scale, the broader picture, for the influence of, of money coming into the market, not necessarily from an informed trader, even from a noisy trader. If you invest $1 as a noisy trader or invest $1 as an informed trader, your impact's going to be the same. So that's already saying, well, uh, uh, you know, according to EMH, a noiseless trader or noisy trader should have no impact on market price. Well, this is clearly not the case. So this is really throwing a spanner in the works for the old EMH theory and are saying that there is a different theory to look at. So then what, what happened was uh, they went further and they said, right, well, let's assume that we're talking about trader impacts and let's assume that we are looking at the relationship between um, a dollar invested in something and its impact on market capitalization or value. Let's look at this in terms of um, uh, what they call meta-orders. In other words, uh, a meta-order is typically how a large-scale investor invests into a position. So they don't apply a, a, a single position in their trade. They'll break that position up into equal intervals and then they'll progressively um, take a position over a period or an interval of time uh, with an assigned amount um, per interval over a period of time. Now, if we find that if there is a... Uh, now, the efficient market hypothesis says, well, all right, guys, you've caught us a bit. Uh, it's getting a bit ugly. We're starting to lose our footing a bit. However, if new information of $1 worth comes into the market the impact of that price is going to move the market price by $1. So that relationship that was talked about with Quebec with $1 invested in equity, lifting it by $1, we'd expect that with EMH. Uh, a quantum worth of information, new information coming in, is going to update the price um, up or down by $1. However, when they looked at research for meta-orders, the impact of how price changes in accordance with the application of an equal amount per period of time over a, a time interval, the influence on that price, they found that there wasn't a linear relationship. In other words, there wasn't a one-to-one -one correspondence. There was what they call a, a, a scale law applied. In other words, it, uh, trying to think of the term that was used. And while you do that, uh, I was just going to say that we're getting close to your 10-minute limit. Okay. So what we found was that there was a square root relationship. In other words, um, when we looked at the meta orders, the, 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 the first half of the sequence of orders had a much greater impact on price movement than the latter half of that sequence of orders. So that's saying that something changes over the course of that interval um, in relation to price impact. So that therefore really throws the final sort of bone of contention towards EMH, this information updating, and it's saying, there is something occurring in the mechanics of price itself internally generated within the market that is moving price. And this starts looking at this notion of order flow, um, at the popularity of these, these new theories of order flow, new theories of trader impact, which are saying that's ultimately what is moving market price. So if we can understand its trader impact moving price, we can better understand how to deal with um, 
news events. So, you know, the, the classic example would be um, if, if we have um, all market participants um, sort of um, interpreting a, a positive piece of news as negative and they sell accordingly, this says that the correct move for the arbitrator is to interpret the news as negative, even if it does not make economic sense. So what it's saying is we should be aligning our arbitrage uh, direction towards what the other traders are doing, as opposed to necessarily the content of that information coming into the market. So what other traders are doing is much more important than the information content. So Steve, that's a sort of in a nutshell going from the micro out to the macro, these new theories which are challenging the old way of looking at information coming into the market. It's starting to convert towards trader impact, other uh, things such as um, the influence that uh, of other, other traders, that what, what they're doing. It just starts to give a rationale for why we have booms and busts, these big moves towards crypto, all of these things which can't be explained by EMH but uh, is better explained through what I think are these more realistic interpretations of market behavior. Yeah, no, this, uh, this was fantastic. I am always impressed with you, Rich, when you take on such a complex topic and explain it in, in words that I think most of, of people listening to us today will, will understand and appreciate. So, I, so I'm, I'm glad for the, for the question, and I'm, I'm really uh, happy uh, that you uh, did the homework uh, and put it through your uh, your beautiful narrative uh, to explain this. I want to move on to the last couple of questions because we're already uh, sort of running um, uh, above the one hour mark. But I do think there's a couple of things that came out this week that is interesting to talk about. One was an article that um, uh, uh, that I saw, I think it was in Bloomberg, where it says, JP Morgan Quant says, faster trend followers are set for a comeback. And let me uh, just unpack this a little bit and then I you know love to hear your thoughts on this as well rich but the article is kind of mainly focused on trading models as far as i recall that trade the s&p so and i'm personally not really that interested in 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 something that is that narrow but i do think the topic of shorter term trend following versus what we do is a good topic to discuss because it is something that I've certainly come across it uh, many times in the last few years, especially, I would say, after, let me think back. So it'll be February of 2018, the Volmageddon move, but also to some extent after the March 2020 COVID crash. And um, a lot of experts and, uh, and of course, also people who have a vested interest in making this argument, but they came out saying that the markets had fundamentally changed compared to the past. And now they were moving much faster, which to some extent was true. I mean, the, the COVID uh, move was, was faster than anything else we'd seen in the, in the S&P, right? So let's make sure that's what we're talking about here. Um, and so these faster moves in markets categorically would mean that old school trend followers would not be able to make money anymore let alone provide any market protection when equities uh, sold off, and that the only solution to this would be a short-term manager. Now, I will say, I do think there's a couple, and I've said it before, there's a couple of really good short-term managers. I have a lot of respect for them. 
But I've also said that I disagree with the notion that short-term trading or trend following is better than what we do. And I'll give a couple of reasons why. First, look at the performance of the longer-term trend followers compared to the shorter-term trend followers in general. Uh, even during these last five years where we've had perhaps uh, moves in the markets that have been somewhat faster, I think the evidence is clear that the classical style trend following managers have done significantly better out of this uh, period. Um, and the second thing is that at least in the firm that I work for, and I'm sure other firms are doing the same thing, when you look at your models, you can test different time frames or look back periods. And when you do that, and we do it a couple of times a year, we check and see what, uh, uh, so that we can discuss it with clients. Um, you know, what are the, what are the performance or what is the success of different look back periods? And when you go back to year 2000, so 22 observations, I think you'll find, and this is a little bit sort of from, from memory here, I think you'll find that maybe 15 of those are like 200 day, you know, 180 or 200 days or more. So definitely not short term. And, um, and there's, and, and even 2008, yes, the absolute best period was 50 days using this particular trend model. But all the other periods made money as well because 2008, it didn't really matter whether you were trading 50 days or 250 days, you would have made money. And then you have a few years where maybe it was 80 or 90 days that was the absolute best time frame. But again, the longer term managers would also have done okay. Now, of course, there's going to be years where long term trend following doesn't work. We know that 2018 is the most recent example we know where nothing worked, not even the short term, I think, as far as I tell. But even within, and, and, and of course, within longer term trend following, you're going to find managers that stand out within short-term trend following, and I don't even want to call it short-term trend following because it's not really trend following the way we understand it, at least not the ones I think are successful in navigating the shorter-term timeframes. Um, but there's always going to be a couple of standouts. So my point is that I think if you are talking general terms, I don't think JP Morgan is right, that there is necessarily going to be this comeback I think we've just seen through the Ukrainian crisis, January and February of this year, that short-term that short managers could not keep up with longer-term uh, managers in that sense. That's not to say that there couldn't be a, a few months coming where they're doing better. It's just to say overall, I don't think you can make uh, you know, a conclusion. And I'm not saying that JP Morgan is saying the short-term is better. They're just saying it's going to have a comeback. But there has certainly been people out saying that Generally speaking, they think market structure had changed and, and that longer-term managers would not do as well. I completely disagree with that finding. And there's, no, there's not a shred of evidence, in my view, to support that if you take a longer-term uh, view. But of course, yeah, February of 2018, sure, short-term managers may have done better than longer-term managers. But one month doesn't make a long track record in any ways. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, that. And the other thing I just want to say as a final closing thought, given what's happened this week, and maybe also given a little bit about my interview that I will publish soon with uh, Kevin Coldiron, who uh, is one of the co-authors of this book, uh, The Rise of Carrie. But 
my 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 concern for investors uh, and also to some extent uh, human beings as a whole is that I think in the last 20, maybe 30 years, we have been conditioned to believe that everything is going to be fine, that the authorities will manage it. The buy the dip mentality has been so um, powerful um, and it has worked out so far. So I think what's going on in the narrative and what's going on is that we, in the market, is that we've ended up being conditioned that it's all going to be fine. And, and during that time, what we have lost is our collective imagination of what can happen. We've simply not, we can't imagine things that we have not seen happening in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I think that's the, the risk I see that with what happened this week, we may be, this may be the beginning of a period where we're going to see things happening that we could not imagine happening. And I think this is where, and to tie it back to what we do and what we love, trend following, I think this is the power of trend following. And this is why I really truly believe that every investor in the world should have a healthy allocation to trend following because that is what trend following can do for you. It can give you back that imagination because we don't predict. It's very simple. So if the world will do something that we can't imagine, at least part of your portfolio will be prepared for that. And that is something that I think is going to be an invaluable, um, I don't know if I would call it resource, but it's going to be invaluable to have that attribute as part of your portfolio. And I encourage people not to be scaremongering here, but I encourage people to start thinking outside the box on all aspects of what they do in life. Um, because we could well be heading into a period of time that is very different from what we've grown up to believe is how things are. Any thoughts uh, to this ramble, uh, Rich? I was just thinking, you know, that um, you, you can't improve on perfection. And I think what you just said was, was eloquent. Um, look, the only thing I've got to say in relation to that J.P. Morgan article was that uh, we often find this commentary coming from um, social media in um, people suddenly defining themselves as trend followers, short-term trend followers, whatever. The first thing you've got to question is, well, are they really trend followers or are we talking momentum or what are we talking about here? So I, I don't like these sort of um, uh, these sort of quick, what, what do you call it, clickbait um, articles. I, I think right. this is more of a clickbait article. Uh, will short-term trend following come back? Well, I, I know using a particular model that I use that I can't get them to work, and I know that uh, I would need a different model to get short-term systems to work. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not, they don't work all the time. There are certain periods of time short-term models work really well, but um, on the balance over a long-term horizon, um, you get eaten by whipsaws enough to get rid of any benefit you might get over the short-term horizon with some of these models so the at least my model um uh over a long term doesn't substantiate what jp morgan is saying there uh, we might be talking about some different form of model um if that's the case sure. um that might be the case but i'm not aware of what they're doing but Niels, that that's all i gotta say 
No, that's fine. That's fine. And uh, and and by the way, I'm pleased that we seem to have managed to go through our recording today without any power outages because that was a real concern that you wrote to me about this morning before we started talking that you have been warned that this could well happen uh, due to the rain. So I appreciate your efforts, uh, Rich, for uh, showing up despite having to wear Crocs and sit in in, in wet conditions. I appreciate the audience for uh, staying with us, um, even though the audio is is somewhat affected by the fact that you can hear the rain. So I appreciate that. I feel like uh, Gene Kelly here, um, Niels. I, I could be sort of skipping on my carpet, which is full of water at the moment, uh, doing the, the Gene Kelly rain dance. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'd love to see that, actually. If you do, uh, please publish it on YouTube. Anyways, the Beta 50 Index so far, and we are now... Referring to the almost end of February. So we have two more trading days in this data that we need to get the full month because this is as a Thursday evening as usual. And we still have the Friday data, which I don't think Friday was a good day for for trend followers, to be frank. Uh, And of course, we have Monday, the 28th of February. So these are not quite final month end numbers. Um, But anyways, the beta 50 index is up 2.43% in February, up uh, 4.12% for the year. The Sokgen trend in, uh, CTA index, sorry, is up 3.71, up 5.86% uh, for the year. The Sokgen trend index, another strong month, 5.44% for the month, up 8.98% for the year, which is pretty much what it made uh, in 2021. And the Sokgen short-term traders index up 1.13% and up 2.33% for the year. My trend barometer, as uh, that uh, Rich referred to earlier, is um, coming in at 66 as of Friday night yesterday. So very much confirming a strong environment for trend following, very much confirming the numbers that I just mentioned. On the other side of that, we have the world government uh, bond index down 1.76% uh, uh, for February, another down month. And we have the MSCI world equity index down 2.58% despite the rebound on Friday and uh, down 7.78% so far this year. So another month, it looks like, where both equities and bonds are moving down, which, of course, we know positive correlation is the norm. It's just not what we've seen typically in the last 20 years or so. Next week, we are back with Rob. Rob is joining us uh, or joining me. Um, So if you have uh, some questions that you want him to tackle, please email them to me at uh, info@toptradersonplot.com. If you enjoyed this episode, um, maybe I could ask you to head over to Spotify or iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a rating and review. Uh, they are super helpful uh, for us and they uh, help other people find the podcast, frankly, which is really what we're hoping for. I think that's it for now. Thank you for staying with us. Thank you, Rich. From Rich and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. And until then, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.